morning, church. We are in Psalm 90 today, if you'd like to take your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, they are, there are Bibles distributed in the church pews. They look just like this one. And if you want to use a Bible like this, it's on page 496, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, as we stand before you this morning, as we gather here in your name to worship you and to learn from your word, keep us mindful that we are but a vapor. Our days are numbered. One day all of mankind will stand before you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for what your word shows us of your character. We thank you how scripture puts everything in perspective. Father, we pray as Toby brings the word this morning that we have attentive ears and that your Holy Spirit will apply the truths of your word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. we on? All right. I have a friend who is, uh, who co-pastors with a couple of other uh, men, and they take turns preaching for a number of weeks at a time, and, and I don't know if it's the person preaching or someone else who selects the songs, but uh, he was telling me once that one of the other pastors uh, that it got, he, he always chose a song that he wasn't quite uh, fond of uh, in, in, when, it was his, when it was his turn to, to choose the music. And he would always choose the song, I'll Fly Away. And he just said, I don't know what it is about that song, but I, 
I just don't like it. And I said, well, you know, it's in the Bible, right, that we fly away. And so I took him to Psalm 90 and to verse 10. And uh, it's not as happy clappy as the song is that we sing. I mean, here it's the end of our days and we fly away. Uh, It's not the destination uh, that's emphasized in Psalm 90 so much as the actual departure uh, that is impending. Last week we started a series uh, called Our God Is, and I made a claim, and it's still my claim, that the fundamental need of mankind is to know who God is. It's our fundamental need because God is our source, source of every breath that we take. He is our sustainer. He is the only Savior. So it is our fundamental need to know who is this God, and we have such a tendency to domesticate this God, to make this God smaller than He actually is, rather than to stand in awe of His greatness. And so in these weeks, our, our desire together is to once again be in awe of this God who has created us, who gives us life and breath in our very being, who has saved us by the blood of His dear Son, who will recreate all things by looking at various attributes that inspire such awe. Last week we began with kind of the attribute of all attributes, that our God is holy. He is unique. He is distinct. He is separate. He is transcendent. He is like no other in all ways. There is no way in which We are precisely like Him, even made in the image of God. We are not like God in the way that God is God. And so there is distinction between Creator and creation. And that holiness marks everything else. Everything else we say will be holy. So today, as we look at Psalm 90 and we think about the fact that God is eternal, this is a function of His holiness. There is, there is no other being that is eternal in the same way that God is eternal. We, we have a distinct beginning. Though we will live forever into the future, we have not existed forever. God alone is eternal. Eternal, And so we come to Psalm 90 to see this. And some psalms, you know, when you read them, they give you an idea of what's going on, what the situation is in which, um, in which the words are written. This psalm doesn't do that. It just opens up with a prayer of Moses, the man of God. But as you think about what's here and you think about the life of Moses, I was uh, compelled, I don't know that I could be dogmatic, but I'm compelled to think that the events of Numbers chapter 20 may lie behind this Psalm. In that chapter, Moses faces the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron, his siblings. Not only that, he faces the consequences of his own disobedience. God tells him to speak to a rock in order to provide water for God's people. But as you recall, Moses strikes the rock instead thus not believing the word of the Lord. And because of his disobedience, God says he will not lead his people into the promised land. So Numbers 20 is marked by both death and disobedience, by human frailty and human failure. And whether that's the precise background of this psalm or not, it, it, must, it is certainly true that in Psalm 90, human frailty, 
and human failure stand in stark contrast with the person of God. In fact, this psalm teaches us that a right understanding of our eternal God puts life in right perspective. A right understanding of our eternal God puts life in right perspective. So as we come, first and foremost, and we'll give the most time to this, I think, we have to note that our God is eternal. God is eternal. This text clearly teaches that. Moses' prayer does not begin with the view of himself. It does not begin with his needs. It doesn't begin with what he'd like God to do for him. It begins with God himself. This is a good way to fashion our own prayers. That before we come, even, you know, the familiar uh, acrostic acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That is shaped by beginning with who God is, adoration. Then who we are in light of who God is. We are those who need to confess, and we are those who need to be thankful because what do you have that you have not received? And then we come along to say, now, in light of who you are and in light of who I am, Lord, would you please do this? Would you act as you have so many times in the past? So Moses' prayer begins with the character of God, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are, as but, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is eternal. You see in verse 2, here are mountains, these mighty and majestic and immovable monstrosities. Places that were thought that if you were at their peak, you were closer to God. In fact, there are uh, those who lead the way, these Sherpas who lead the expeditions up Mount Everest that, that see the mountain itself as divine. And yet Moses makes it clear, these mountains had a beginning. They were once nothing. There was a time when the mountains didn't exist. just as the entire world and the earth did not exist. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning that there was a time when there were no heavens, there was no earth, there was only God. Before there was anything else, God was. One who has never come into being. He has never progressed. He has never changed. He has never grown. He has always been in the fullness of His glory, existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is from everlasting and to everlasting. He is before, out of forever, if you will, and into forever. Psalm 
93, you are from everlasting. Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In the 17th century, uh, uh, the Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote it this way, He neither began with the beginning of time, nor will expire with the end of it. His duration is as endless as His essence is boundless. Now, when we come to these things, uh, our puny minds tend to smoke, don't they? These are things we find very easy to say and very difficult to comprehend. Oh, yes, God was before everything. Eternity past, eternity future, all of it. And then you start to say, well, what does that mean? Uh, 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 right? And this is where uh, philosophy will seek to, to pick up and, 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 and make, uh, make it starting, start talking about the concept of time and timelessness and all of these things. Well, I'm not going to do any of that. But what I do think is important is that we understand God's relationship to time as our eternal God. First, He is not bound by time. In His very being, He is not bound by time. Everything we do is bound by time, isn't it? Your birth certificate had a particular time that you came into the world. Your death certificate will have a particular time that you depart from it. We need more time to finish a work project. We don't have time to stop at the store. We have appointments with doctors and financial advisors and colleagues and clients, all at particular times. The longer we live, the faster we perceive time to move. We're very aware of how much time we spend working, how much time we give our families, how much vacation time we have left for the year, how many days are left until school starts again, immediately to begin how many days are left until school is over again. We wish we had more time for this or for that, for a hobby, for reading, for praying, for sleeping, for projects at home, for playing catch, for friends, for family. We feel the pressure of time to finish, to do, to get here, to go there, to hurry. We know what it is to be early. We know what it is to be on time. We know what it is to be late. We are bound by time. But God is not. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The same language is used in Second Peter, isn't it? Second Peter 3, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, if you're a math person, I won't say math nerd, though I'm thinking it. But if you're a math person, this kind of language is not meant for us to say, oh, well, if I, take a, if I take a day and I begin to multiply by thousands and I do this and I do that, we're not meant to, to do math after this. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So we're not meant to do math here. Kurt, you didn't say amen because you'd prefer to do math, right? All right. So we're not meant to do math. This is not meant for us to multiply out so that we can try to get some exact understanding of God's perception of time. The point is God is not bound nor does He see time in exactly the same way that we do. 
We're, we're bound by time and God is not. God seeing a thousand years is like you and me looking at yesterday. It's as clear as that. It's like last night's sleep. You went to sleep, it felt like ten minutes later your alarm went off. It's just like that. Because he's not bound by that, the construction of time. He's not bound. He's not pressurized. He's not pressed by it. This is how we get to our phrase, you know, God works in his own time. You've heard this. You've said it, right? God works in his own way. He works in his own timing. I mean, at this moment in your life, right now, there may be something that you've been praying about, and you're pretty certain God needs to get busy answering that prayer because time is running out. God isn't bound like that. His view is eternal. He's not pressed. He's not pressured by time. He knows what we need before we ever say it. Not only does He know what we need, He knows when we might happen to need it. And actually, He knows whether we need it at all. He sees the end from the beginning. And because He does that, because He's not bound by time, because He's not pressurized, He's not pressed, he's not, He is not, you know, Amazon guaranteeing that your gift will be there by Friday, which Jim Schweiker can tell you is not always the case. But He's not like that. His plan unfolds exactly as He wants. And our perception of the timing of it. We may be right on pace. We may, nobody's going to get to the end. I told the priest this morning. Nobody's going to get to the end of life and get to eternity and say, man, that really should have gone differently. God should have really done that sooner. Many people lament the fact that they come to Christ later in life. And I understand some sense in what they mean. I, you know, I, would have, I want to serve the Lord longer. And yet, in God's goodness and kindness and grace, we come to faith just when He brings us to faith. For reasons we need not try to track down, we just need to rejoice that He brought us to Himself. God is not bound by time. Yet at the same time, God is active in time. He is not bound by time, but He is not removed from time. He is active in it. That's why, I mean, Moses has a keen awareness. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Throughout all of history, God, from the very moment that you began, you have been the dwelling place of your people. You are our home, he says. Isn't that wonderful? He is our home. He is the place where we're protected and provided for and secure. When storms rage all around, you come inside the house. You know when you've been away for too long and it just feels good to go home. He is that place. He is the place of comfort and protection and help 
and security for each one of us, and not just for each one of us, but for all generations. Even when it seems we're homeless, in God we're home. He has been our dwelling place in all of human history. And then he gets even particular. I mean, this is a general statement, but it's true of all of us. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Every one of our days is already written in his book. I mean, just think about the activity of God in time. He keeps creation on schedule. He promises to do it, right? After the flood, he says, as long as the world exists, you know, summertime and harvest and all these things are going to keep on going. And he's kept on going. Now, you may wonder, where is summer this year? Is it actually coming? Is there any temperature over 80 degrees that's going to come? Well, God is sovereign over all these things. It's a lot warmer. Look, three weeks ago, you were complaining that it was too cold. So let's just, this is a pattern, isn't it? We complain about why the next season isn't already here. When is it going to be fall? When is it going to be winter? When am I going to see snow? When am I never going to see snow? And on and on. But God keeps creation on schedule from the sun's rising to its setting. He, he makes kings and kingdoms rise and fall at particular times. Indeed, the entire story of the Bible is how God has works in time. His redeeming pursuit of His rebellious creation takes place as history unfolds, and it reaches its pinnacle in the fullness of time when the Father sends forth His Son, the one who was from before all things, according to Colossians 1, is born at a particular time and a particular place, that He is Emmanuel, He is God with us, the One who is over and above all of human history, steps into it in the person of Jesus Christ to live for us, to die for us, to save us. And not only that, not only that, dear Christian, He's at work, he was at, He's been at work in your life in time. He gave you the parents that you have. He has moved your story along from those beginnings with the background you have. And whether you grew up in that home or whether by God's kindness you were moved to a home in which you were adopted by another. He has continued to unfold your life and weave the story of your life into the stories of others so that at some point some passionate and convicted person told you the story of Jesus and His love. And the eternal God worked in some particular moment to open your eyes, to open your heart so that you'd see your sin and see your Savior and come to faith. And that prayer that you're praying even now for whatever it is, the one where we want to clearly say God is not bound by time, He is not bound to do it in what we would say, uh, you know, in, in our time. But isn't it amazing? So many stories could be told. I could tell stories from my own life of how God answered in a way that I would call just in time. You imagine George Mueller in the basement of the orphanage praying that God will provide milk for the children. And then a buggy pulls up loaded with milk to give. 
More than once, Susan and I haven't known where this or that were coming from, where the provision of God would come. And then things that never happen in this world happen. Somehow we overpaid on our car insurance. And some money is returned to us. I keep meaning to ask why that doesn't happen more often, because it feels like I'm overpaying. But those things will happen. And the God who did all of this, the God who moved human history forward, who crushed His own Son, who worked in our personal history and brought us to Himself, He says He will never leave us nor forsake us. The work that He has started in us, He will finish. He will keep working in our time, in our days, till our days end, and He carries us into the glories of heaven. Now, friend, you may not be a Christian, and God may have brought you here today. God may have brought you here many days. And just as He has graciously opened the eyes of so many around you and forgiven their sin at some point in life, do you know that today could actually be that some point for you? Because God is still at work in time. He's at work even now. He's at work in our hearts. He's at work here. He's at work in churches just like this that proclaim His Word. He is at work through the missionaries that we partner with all around the world. He is at work in time. He is not bound by time, but He is at work in time. Imagine a river, if you will. It flows from its starting point, starts as a mere trickle, and it grows and it goes and it swerves until it is swallowed by the sea. Now imagine that that river is time. And God is outside it and He started the stream and He has carved the very path of the stream and He regulates its current and He keeps it on track so that it winds up exactly where it's going to go. But not only that, God is not just outside the current, overseeing it, watching over it, making sure it stays on course. He is active at every point in the river. He is in the river itself, working, keeping the current where we are, whether we're on the rapids or whether we're in the smooth, float-along part of the river. He is outside of time, and yet He is inside of time. He moves history along, and yet He's not moved by history. He changes times and seasons, and yet He Himself remains unchanged, which has many implications. The fact that our God is eternal, I'll just give you a handful. The first is that if He promises to never leave or forsake you, that means forever. Forever. That's good news. You sit here today, and things in your life may make you feel that you've been forsaken or that you've been forgotten, and the reality is you haven't. God is with you, and if you're His, God is for you, and He will carry you along. Not only that, but because our God is eternal, He is worthy of our praise no matter what our circumstances are. Psalm 113, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
From this moment forward, you realize there are a lot of different kinds of moments that still await us in the future, right? But in every one of them, the name of the Lord is blessed. Our God is eternal, which means that His Word, which matches His character, will never fade, and it will never fail, and it will never go away. Flowers, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Because God is eternal, the joy that He gives us in Himself will never end. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because God is eternal, His love and His faithfulness endure. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Dear friend, He has loved us with an everlasting love. Nothing in the present and nothing in the time to come will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is eternally who He is. God is eternal, and a right understanding of that truth gives us a right perspective of our life, which is what comes next in the psalm. Namely, that while God is eternal, number two, we are not. That's pretty clear, right? Being in the presence of an eternal God makes our finiteness clear. Speaking of us and our days, uh, beginning in verse 5, You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So what are we? If God is eternal and we are not, what are we? Well, the text makes it clear first that we are frail. We are frail individuals. Verse 5, our days are easily swept away. They're like a dream. Dreams are so vivid in the moment and yet forgotten in the morning. That's what your life is. James 4 says, what, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Going on, he, starts, he goes to uh, the grass and, and, and the flowers we're, our lives are like the grasses and the flowers. They bloom for a season and then they wither. I mean, we think about it. We begin very small and very frail, and then we grow. We add height. We add weight. We add intellect. We add strength. We add wisdom. We add maturity until we reach adulthood. But at some point, the tables turn, don't they? Everyone who knows that the tables have turned, say yes. 
Okay, so many people feel this. The tables have turned, and we are past our peak. Now, we may still be adding weight. All right? And by God's kindness, we are still adding wisdom. But we begin to lose, don't we? We lose vitality. We lose endurance. We lose strength. We can even lose height because our spine begins to compress. We lose mental capacity. We lose memory. Wounds heal more slowly. Our bodies slow down. Our mind slows down. Everything slows down until we stop. We flourish and then we fade. We bloom and then we wither. We're brought to an end. Our days pass away. They are soon gone. We fly away. We are frail. But not only are we frail, we fail. Somehow being in the presence and thinking on the eternity of God brings to light not only the temporality of Moses, but the depravity of Moses. He has an instinctive sense that the finite is accountable to the infinite. That the infinite is where the buck stops. That the infinite holds the gavel. That the infinite will make the final decisions. Verse 8, our iniquities are before him. The reason why he says our iniquities are before us, he doesn't say that. You know why? Because time makes even memories of our rebellion fade. You can get older and tend to think you weren't all that bad. This is why when you look at younger generations, you think, we were never this bad. We never did that. We never rebelled against our parents. That's right, you did. I mean, we did. You said you didn't say I did. You said we did. I'm going to take that, Tom. We did. And yet, the memory of our own sin can fade with time, can it? It seems to go away, but the reality of our failures don't go away. We speak of skeletons in our closet, you know, things in the past that we just rather not drag out and bring into the light, right? But from God's perspective, there is no closet. There is no dark closet where old sins hide. Now, just think of it. Most of us probably know that uh, once you post something on, say, social media, it is out there seemingly forever. Uh, now, as Christians, we need to know, and probably all of us need to be reminded and cautioned that what we post reflects what's in our hearts, and that what we post can honor or dishonor Christ. But everybody needs to know that what you do on social media will follow you. Future employers will see it. Future potential spouses will see it. Their families will see it. It just follows you. The person who runs against you for that political office, 
Their whole campaign team will see it. They can find anything. And yet there's still some way that some things about us we can keep hidden. They can still remain in the past. But not with God. God needs no search engine. He does not need to dig deep. He sees it beginning to end. And so Moses has this keen awareness that in light of the infinite, he is a failure and that he is accountable to God. This is why God's wrath keeps coming up. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. It's why we die. It's a, it's a small temporal expression of the wrath of God which burns for all eternity. By your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. That's how bad things are. You've had those long days, right? Have you ever had that long day? You've worked and you've worked and you've toiled and it's been hard and you've, you, all kinds of things have happened. And then you finally get to whatever chair it is that you sit and you sit down and you go, <sighs> what's wrong, honey? Long day. That's what happens at the end of our lives. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who? Who really gets this? Moses is clear that God is eternal and that we are not. And that this, the very fact that God is eternal has brought this perspective to his mind. He is more clear about himself because he is more clear about who God is. There is no right understanding of ourselves apart from a right understanding of God. Now, when we think about this, when we think about the eternal God and we think about the fact that in light of who he is, we are not only frail, but we are failures. Friends, this... This is what should cultivate a deep and growing measure of humility in our lives. We are not as good as we think we are. We are not as good as we seek to make other people think we are. The reality is we are finite and we fail and we stand in the light of a holy and eternal God. And we're like the sand on the seashore. We're like a drop in the bucket. We're nothing in emptiness. You see, humility is not thinking worse about yourself. Humility is not where you just start to tear yourself down and talk about how awful you are. Humility is not self-loathing. Humility is not self-degradation. Humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's just actually seeing yourself for who you really are in light of who God is. That's what humility is. When we are proud... We have forgotten that the years of our strength are 70, maybe 80. We have forgotten that our days soon pass away and we are gone. We have forgotten that the very breath with which we breathe our prideful statements 
was given to us by a God who never changes and will never end. Pride is a forgetfulness of God and thus a forgetfulness of ourself. We want to be forgetful of ourselves in some ways that are good, that we're not prioritizing ourselves, we're not putting ourselves forward, but there really needs to be a self-forgetfulness in the sense that really my life is not my own, both by creation and by redemption. It's not mine. I am not. He is. That's the perspective that Psalm 90 should give us. That's why it's so helpful, even to, when it's read many times in, in a funeral service. Because it's a reminder that the frailty of life exhibited by the one who has gone is the frailty we all share. And the fact that man is appointed once to die and then comes the judgment does not simply apply to all those who have gone before. It applies to me. It applies to you. God is eternal. We are not. That's the right perspective. And we need God's help to know that, which is why we get to the third thing. God is eternal. We are not. Third, so we pray. We need God's help as those who are frail and who fail. Not only just to see things that way, but to live accordingly. So Moses basically prays for two things. One that we should pray for, which the first is for perspective. Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now the numbering of days certainly includes the notion of uh, the having the perspective of the shortness of life in contrast to the eternity of God, that we're limited, that life is short. But the verb here, to number, is not simply used as counting things up in the Bible. It also means to appoint something on purpose, with intentionality. It's used in several places. I'll limit myself by just mentioning one book where it's mentioned because it should be fresh in our minds, and that is in the book of Jonah where the Bible tells us in chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish. In chapter 4, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. God appointed a scorching east wind. Every one of those appointeds is the exact same verb as teaching us to number our days. So it seems that Moses' prayer is really twofold. One, God, give me a perspective that life is short, that life is, I am not eternal, but also, Lord, teach me to appoint my days in such a way that I gain a heart of wisdom. Teach me to not just wind up just kind of free-floating through this life. Help me to live on purpose. He's praying exactly what Paul commands in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, you, making the most, making the best, best use of the time because the days are evil. That is almost an exact replica of what 
Moses is praying. He wants wisdom. Teach me to number my days so that I may have a heart of wisdom. And Paul says, yes, yes. Look how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's praying what Chris Rice sang so many years ago. Teach us to count the days and teach us to make the days count. Lead us in better ways. Somehow our souls forgot. Life means so much. He's praying that two-line poem first uttered by missionary C.T. Studd, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The only way our days will count, that what we do in this life will last beyond it, will last for eternity, will matter for eternity, that is, is for God to help us, which is why he prays in verse 16 and 17, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You can work and you can work and you can work and you can work and if the Lord does not establish it, it goes away with you. How sad that is. Do you want your life to matter? Not for yourself, but within the scope of the kingdom of God? Do you want your life to matter? Do you believe God wants you to use every single day intentionally? Of course. Well, the only way we can do that is to pray this prayer, but it should really have an asterisk. It should come with a warning like so many other things because this is a dangerous prayer. Teach us to count the days. Teach us to make the days count. Do you know if you begin to pray that way, it may endanger many things that we are pursuing right, right now with our time and with our money and with our careers and in our families. Because here's the reality. This is a verse. You take Psalm 90, verse 12, and you could take this to anybody. Teach us to count the days. And you say, you know, life is really short, isn't it? Nobody's going to be saying, I don't understand what you mean. What do you mean life is short? The reality is, this is where the whole YOLO thing came, right? You only live once. Life is short. So what should you do? Well, the world has counsel for us here. You should focus on you. Life is short. Pamper yourself. See the world. Seek exciting adventures. Create a bucket list and finish it. Burn through as many short-term physical relationships as you can. Cut off any relationships that don't fit with the you-centered version of life. The world has counsel. It knows that life is short, but it has come to the wrong conclusion on how to live in response to such a short life. The right answer is gaining a heart of wisdom, that I might see life God's way, that I might live life God's way. And then when God answers, this is why it's dangerous. When He teaches me to number my days, all of a sudden I realize that the days that are numbered are not mine. My life is not my own. We say it this way in my, between Susan and I, Mlinmo, my life is not my own. Mlinmo. Just go ahead. Just walk around. Somebody asks you to do something, something to do something extra. You know, your aunt needs extra help. Your friend needs extra help. You know you should do it. Just utter it to yourself. Mlinmo. My life is not my own. My time is not my own. This day is not my own. This sermon is not my own. Your time here is not your own. 
This afternoon is not your own. This evening is not yours. This work week coming up isn't yours. Teach us to number our days. Do you see how dangerous this gets? All of a sudden, my agenda's on the line. All of a sudden, the days that are numbered are not to seek myself, but to die to myself and to serve others, to give to others rather than hoarding for myself, to be poured out for the service of others rather than expect others to serve me or expecting my money to serve all my needs. All of a sudden, days that are counted in this way are days where I seek first the kingdom of God, where I don't love the things of the world, where we serve God, not money, where we store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. When I learn to number my days and my life comes to an end, I don't so much look back on all the things that I did or didn't do, but I look forward to the eternal reward that awaits for those who are good and faithful servants. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's the one we ought to pray in light of our frailty. Secondly, we pray for mercy. This is verse 13 and 15 to 15. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. We see our sin and we see our need for mercy. That phrase, have pity, there in verse 13 basically means to turn back, to relent. So the wrath that he has been expressing and that he knows exists, he's saying, Lord, relent of that wrath. Have pity. Sin has us dismayed, according to verse 7. But Lord, would you make us glad in its place by showing mercy? Stephen Charnock again. Listen to the eternal God and His relationship to punishment. That the judge and punisher lives forever is the greatest grievance to a soul in the misery of sin. His eternity makes the punishment more dreadful than His power. His power makes it sharp, but His eternity renders it perpetual. Ever to endure is the sting at the end of every lash. We are a people in need of mercy. Do you know yourself in need of mercy? Do you know the mercy of God? We are all failures. We are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners. We are all rebels. And if, when we see that that is true of us, we must call on God's mercy. And if you see it for the first time, call on Him. Jesus was crucified to satisfy the very wrath that we read about here, to die under the eternal punishment of God for all who would trust in Him. So if you call on Him for mercy, if you trust in Christ, there will not be one moment of wrath for you to endure in eternity. There will be not one drop for you to drink. Death will be but a door to eternal life. Our God is eternal. We are not.
We, frail, we are frail and we fail. And because we are frail, we pray for the right perspective. Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to count the days. Teach us to make the days count. And because we fail, we pray for mercy. And we rest in that mercy both now and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you. You are the eternal God. Our minds cannot even comprehend eternity in the way that you are eternal. It is beyond us in comprehension, and yet it gives us comfort because we believe it. Because you are not only eternal, you are good. You are wise. You are not bound by time. You are not bound by our sense of pressure, uh, the pressures of time. For you there is no early, there is no late. There is only your perfect, eternal plan unfolding in human history in our histories. And so because you are eternal and we are not, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Have pity on us who need your mercy continually. We are thankful that even as the great and terrible wrath that you have stored up will last forever and ever, we are thankful that the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from our sin and gives us salvation and makes us right with you, that the benefits of that salvation are, are just as long. They are eternal. Thank you for that that the blood that gives me strength from day to day will never lose its power. Give us humility. Give us wisdom. Give us a refreshed vision of You, our eternal God, that we might not live for what is finite and temporal, but for You, the Eternal One. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Give us grace to set our minds on the things above, the things that are eternal. And now we pray that you would bless us and keep us. That you would make your face to shine upon us. That you would lift up your countenance to us and give us peace. An eternal peace experienced in the peace of resting in you day to day. In Jesus' name, amen.